Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Psalm 84 is really a sweet, sweet psalm. And Psalm 84 is really a song, a psalm of longing. In it, the psalmist expresses this deep longing for the only thing that can really satisfy his soul. And the only thing that can satisfy his soul is the only thing that can satisfy our soul, and that is the presence of God. The only thing that can really satisfy us down deep is the presence of the Lord. And so this psalm is really all about that, finding the joy in the presence of the Lord uh, with anticipation, looking forward to meeting with the Lord. Uh, This is also a, a, a psalm of ascent. This is a psalm that describes kind of the joy and the anticipation of making a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And you say, pilgrimage back to Jerusalem? What are you talking about? And when we're studying through these Old Testament texts, for us to really understand that we have to wrap our mind around what was going on in their culture in those ancient days. And in ancient Jewish culture, three times a year, the people would make their way to Jerusalem. No matter where you lived in Israel, if you were 20 years of age or older, you would make your pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. Very significant, very uh, rich uh, in imagery and meaning. These three main feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And these feasts, boy, they would be joyous, They would be so wonderful. It's actually been said by ancient Jewish historians that if you've never seen certain aspects of these feasts, then you've never experienced true joy in your heart. And so there was great anticipation to make this pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. But it was more than just what it signified. And again, these were rich Uh, in meaning for the Jew. Passover looked back to their being set free from the bondage in in Egypt. When the death angel passed over, they took the blood of the lamb and they applied it to the doorpost. And when that death angel came, boy, everybody who applied the blood of their lamb was spared. They were saved. Uh, Pentecost looked back and commemorated the giving of the law. When God gave his people his written word and tabernacles, it was a commemoration. It looked back and they, they celebrated how God was faithfulness or faithful to them in the wilderness. So they were very rich in meaning. Uh, but before I lose you, you know, uh, on Jewish history, those feasts, although we don't celebrate them, they're very meaningful for us too. For you see, the Passover, boy, they applied the blood of the lamb and they experienced newness of life and freedom from slavery. Boy, the same is true for us. The Bible says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And when we apply his blood to our lives in faith, what do we experience? Boy, death passes over. We experience life and freedom. Pentecost, they celebrated again, the giving of the law. But we're not under the law anymore. What is significant about Pentecost for the New Testament believer? Boy, it was the day that the Holy Spirit was given. Boy, 3,000 souls were saved. Beautiful. And then, of course, tabernacles celebrated God's provision. And God is faithful, is he not? Does he not provide? Does he not take care of his his people? And what a wonderful thing it is. And so, as they were making this pilgrimage there, boy, there was great anticipation. They were really looking forward to these celebrations. But it wasn't only 
uh, about the, the commemoration. It wasn't only about the celebration, but it was also a, a, about an eternal perspective. See, God wanted to give his people an eternal perspective. And that pilgrimage back was a reminder to God's people that they didn't belong on this earth, that they were actually pilgrims on this earth. They're sojourners. They're just passing through. Their true home is heaven. See, well, why couldn't everybody just stay home and celebrate Passover? Why couldn't everybody just stay home and celebrate Pentecost or Tabernacles? They could have. It would be like if, if we all went to Washington, D.C. to celebrate the 4th of July. It's just not necessary. But see, there was something more that God wanted to show his people. And, and the things that God wanted to show his people then, he wants to show us today. See, we're still God's people, and we're still pilgrims. Right? The New Testament uh, is chock full of this reality. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. See, Peter reminds us of that as New Testament believers. He said, hey, don't get too sucked into this world and what's going on here. Right? We're here. We're to make a difference. We're to be salt and light. But this is temporary, folks. Our residency is heaven. We are citizens in heavens. And while we are here, we're to be ambassadors for Jesus. We're to keep our eyes on the prize. And I bring that up this morning because... It's so easy, isn't it, for us to forget that reality. It's so easy for us to get sucked into the things of this world and, and you know, my comfort and my mortgage and my retirement and, and whatever it is, but this isn't the end game. This is a shadow of the things to come. And God gave his people that reminder, and he's given us a reminder in his word, and so it's good. And so as they're making this pilgrimage, together as families, families traveling, and and it really was a wonderful and joyous thing because they were looking forward, again, to the celebration and the feasts and the festivities. There was the aspect where they were reminded that this is temporary, that this world isn't their home. But the greatest thing of all, the, 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 the greatest joy, what they looked forward to the most by far was the fact that they were going to be in the presence of the Lord. See, that's what was significant because in Jerusalem was the temple and in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God's presence resided back then tangibly for the people. And so when they were heading to Jerusalem, they're like, man, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. This is going to be so great. Why? Because the presence of the Lord is all that we long for. It's all that we desire. It's the only thing that satisfies us. And the psalmist understood that. And that's what this psalm is all about. Man, about the blessedness of the presence of the Lord. Now, aren't you glad as New Testament Christians that we don't have to wait for, you know, uh, three times a year when we can make our pilgrimage to a city and experience God's presence just at the temple? But no, we can experience God's presence anytime we want. Anytime we want to get on our knees or open his word or put on some worship music, we can experience just God's presence and relationship with him. But do we? And that's the question. And that's what I hope we get out of this morning is that as we kind of go over, boy, just their excitement to go and see the Lord, how much do we take the Lord for granted? Well, we can go before him anytime we want. And sometimes we're like, ah, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe not, you know. And, and really, it's the only thing that will bring us true joy. And so the psalmist here, this whole psalm, is about the blessedness of dwelling in the house of the Lord, the blessedness of the presence of the Lord. It's better than anything that this world has to offer. So verse 1, and we'll just, we'll dive in. 
How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So the psalmist, he, he opens up and he doesn't mince any words. And he, he says, Lord, I, I, I long for you. Lord, your tabernacle is so lovely. My soul longs, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for you. Everything that he has, his heart and his flesh, his whole being, cry out to the Lord. He desires to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, we can just read that and say, well, he cries out. But to, to cry out, that, that phrase, there, there's a connotation there. It would be like a, a child who is hungry cries out to their parents. But you think about that need. You think about that desire. Uh, you know, a, a child when he's hungry, any of you who have raised children, from the time that they're babies to the time that they're towering teenagers, boy, they're going to let you know when they're hungry. They're going to just, and when they're babies especially. And that's the idea is the psalmist is crying out saying, Lord, I need you so desperately. I need you more than I need anything else in life. And as I studied through this, man, it, it caused me to, you know, to reflect, to really pray on this, to consider, you know, again, how are we doing in that area? Is, is being in the Lord's presence the thing I desire over anything else? Or is it recreation? Or is it, you know, relationship with uh, somebody humanly? Or, or all these other things that try to take the place of God in our life. Like, how do we desire uh, the presence of the Lord? The, the Bible says, taste and see that I am good. And see, I think that's the problem is when we don't desire the Lord, we've forgotten how good the Lord is. We've forgotten just how his presence satisfies our souls. And I hope this morning that we're reminded of that reality and that we long for it. We hunger and we thirst for it once again. And so the psalmist opens up with this, man, just desire. Lord, with everything that I am, my heart yearns for you. Verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for her young where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Selah. So the psalmist kind of gives this firsthand account. We can see, uh, you know, he gives this description of these birds that are nesting uh, in and around the tabernacle, the swallow and the sparrow. That that these little birds, they make their nest and their home really is in the sanctuary. They live where God's presence is. So the psalmist, he, you know, he says, blessed is the one who dwells in the house of the Lord. Speaking of the birds, as he gives that description, boy, they go and they, they make their nests and they raise their young uh, and they experience this freedom and, and this safety and this contentment, these, these little birds. And the interesting thing about these little birds is that the swallow and the sparrow are both significant. The, the, the swallow was known for its restlessness. If you've ever watched any sort of little bird, I don't think that this is just for swallows. You ever watch a little bird? We used to have this little bird feeder outside of our window hanging from a tree that I had to butcher because the insurance company said it was too close to my house. But anyways, that's a completely different story. Uh, we used to watch this uh, bird feeder, and these little birds would land there and I'm telling you what, they didn't land on that bird feeder and just kind of take a nap. They hopped around and pecked and jumped over here and jumped on the deal and they squawked at each other and they jumped on the ground and got the stuff that they missed. And they're always just moving around, restless, never at peace, these little birds. And uh, swallows are kind of known for that, I guess. 
Uh, sparrows, they're known uh, as being insignificant, biblically speaking anyways, because remember back uh, in New Testament times when Jesus was walking on this earth, uh, he talked about the sparrows. And in those days, you could buy two sparrows for one penny. That's how inexpensive they were. And Jesus used their kind of insignificance as a lesson. He said, look, these sparrows, you can buy two for one cent, but when even one falls to the ground, your Father in heaven takes notice. How much more does he care for you? And he goes on to say that the numbers of your head are counted, that the Lord knows you. But here's the interesting thing. So the restless little insignificant sparrow, they go into the temple where the presence of the Lord is, and they find rest, and they find peace, and they find contentment. And so even... How much more would we, who are created in God's image, find rest and peace and contentment in God's presence? And that's why the psalmist says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Man, the birds were lodged there. The sons of Korah, who we're going to talk about here in a little bit, uh, that's who this song was uh, written for. They were the worship leaders there in the temple, but they were also the doorkeepers. So they would lead in song, but they were also the bouncers. And I like that image because they were musicians, but there was no skinny jeans in sight. They were musicians, but there was no feminine quality. They were men. They guarded the door and they were musicians. I appreciate that quality in those guys. I feel like we've gone a weird direction in, uh, I don't know, worship music artistry. Uh, anyways, that's a side topic that I won't get into this morning. Uh, but the, the psalmist looks around and says, man, the birds, how lucky they are to get to live here in God's presence. The sons of Korah, man, they're so blessed to live in the house of the Lord. And this is the first of three blessed statements. So we're going to see that there are three statements of blessing in Psalm 84. And so what does it mean to be blessed? Uh, blessed is a word that we throw around a lot uh, in church culture, isn't it? Uh, boy, I'm so blessed, and the Lord has blessed me. And, and, and that's accurate and true. It's a word that we throw a lot, around a lot in American culture, just in life. Uh, you know, selfie from Hawaii, hashtag blessed life. Uh, you know, I got a new car, so I'm blessed. I got this, and, and, and I'm blessed. And I was in my backyard the other day, and I was studying there on the patio, and, and I, uh, man, I sneezed, and there was something in the air that just causing me to sneeze. And when I sneeze, it's like a hurricane. I don't know what it is, uh, but I sneezed, and I hear from over the fence, my neighbor was back there, he's like, God bless you. I was like, oh, man, like waking up the whole neighborhood over here. Uh, but what does it mean when we say God bless you? What does it mean when we say, oh, we're blessed? What does blessed even mean? Well, in its simplest form of the word, it means happy is what it really means. Happy and blessed, they're synonymous. You can use those words interchangeably. But blessed in a biblical sense is much deeper. It means much more than just a, a superficial emotion or happiness. Blessedness, or to be blessed, biblically speaking, is a, a deep joy. It's a deep contentment. It's a deep satisfaction that can't be shaken. It can't be robbed. Not by any sort of strife or sickness or poverty or grief or persecution. It, it, it's this deep-seated joy that we have that is just unshakable. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I want a piece of that action, right? I want that joy that is not dependent upon my circumstances, and that's what it means to be blessed. And so as we read through these blessed statements, the Lord 
is telling us this is how you find that peace. This is how you find that joy, even in the midst of your circumstances. And the first thing was in my presence, in my house. That's where you find that satisfaction, that blessing, when we are in God's presence. Blessedness at its core, that unspeakable joy and satisfaction, only comes from unhindered fellowship with God through his son Jesus. That's it. It's because of the work of the cross, we can have this, this, this relationship. We can even go into the Lord's presence. Uh, that is where true blessedness comes from. And that's why the psalmist says, blessed is the one who dwells in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. Again, the material things of this world, the things that we strive for so often, man, they will never, ever satisfy our soul. I don't care what you're into or what you're chasing. When you get there, there will always be something else to chase. When you achieve it, there will always be something else to achieve. The things of this world will let you down, but the Lord never will be. And that's the thing, you guys, is that the Lord is so available. You know, I think about how much time we spend striving for temporal things. Now, I'm not saying we ought to strive for the Lord necessarily because the work is done. But imagine if we desired that like we desired our earthly goals. Man, what a difference that would make uh, in our lives. And so blessed is the one who dwells in the house of the Lord. Our first of three blessed statements. Verse five. <clears throat> Pardon me. Verse five. I got to find the right darn chapter. I'm ringing. Here we go. Verse five. For real this time. Blessed, number two, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, Lord whose heart is set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca. They make it a spring. They rain also, uh, the rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now, this is a really cool little section, and I don't want to lose you in this, uh, but this is a second blessed statement that, that blessed is the man whose strength is in the Lord who relies on the Lord, who leans on the Lord, who looks to the Lord. And in these few verses, right, remember that they're on a journey, God's people. They're heading to Jerusalem. They're making this pilgrimage. And their hearts are filled with joy and their families are with them and they're, they're filled with anticipation of, of what's going to meet them when they get there. Well, let's just be real. And they're walking mile upon mile upon mile through the desert, uh, the weather was brutal. The mileage was long. They would be camping out. Uh, you know, they would face, you know, sicknesses or, you know, animals or pests or e even robbers. Uh, there was no easy travel. They weren't calling Ubers. There was no Airbnb to stay in. It was a difficult, difficult journey. And so we get this description of the Valley of Baca. So the Valley of Baca, what is that all about? Well, the Valley of Baca literally means the Valley of Weeping or the Valley of Tears. It, it describes an arid and desolate valley that they would encounter in their journey to Jerusalem. And they would get there. It was such a, a, a gnarly and arid place that it was named the Valley of Weeping. How would you like to have to cross the Valley of Weeping with your family as you're camping and hiking? Boy, that doesn't sound like much fun to me. But the cool thing about this is, and what I don't want you to miss, 
is that as they're going through this very difficult season, this difficult part of their journey, they keep their hearts set on the Lord. And as they look to the Lord as their strength, something amazing happened. That valley of aridness, that valley of weeping, that valley of sorrow, what happens to it? It turns into a spring of life where the rain falls and the springs well up and there's actually pools of water that as they pass through it, as they kept their eyes on the Lord, boy, not only were they blessed and refreshed, but they left this desolate valley better than they found it and those who came after them were blessed. That to me really is amazing. But the interesting thing about the Valley of Baca is that biblically there's no geographical note uh, or location given on, on where this is. There's no historical reference in the Bible about this uh, valley being a physical place. That's because Baca really is a, it's a picture. It, it's the name of the difficult seasons that we go through on this journey that we call life. That we come to those valleys of sorrow. We come to those valleys of weeping. And things are arid and things are dry. And when we get to those valleys, we have a choice. To be overcome and consumed by our circumstances. To trust in our own strength. Or to lean on the Lord. To keep our eyes fixed on him and the joy of heaven, our home. And when we rely on his strength, something amazing happens. The Lord turns that arid place into a place of refreshing. He blesses our life. We talk about it so often that the Lord does that in our lives. He takes those difficult situations and he turns them into blessings. Isaiah tells us that he gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. But that's only something that happens when we trust in the Lord. And I really believe that's what the Valley of Baca is. It's a picture. It's a reminder that the Lord can take the Valley of Weeping and turn it into uh, the Valley of Refreshment. And that's great. I'm so grateful that the Lord does that in my life, that the Lord can take those seasons of difficulty and turn them into real blessings. But the thing that amazes me is that he doesn't kind of, uh, you know, keep those blessings localized in my life or your life either. But the Lord uses those difficulties in your life to bless other people. And so often when we're going through hard times, we say, Lord, why? That's always a question. Lord, why am I going through this difficulty? I don't see how it fits into your plan for my life. Or usually what I pray, Lord, is I don't see how this fits into my plan for my life. But it's not about me. It's not about you. Sometimes the Lord allows you to go through something that you might be a lifeline to somebody else. Well, isn't that a rad thought? That through our suffering, somebody else might be saved. That somebody else might find the refreshment found in Jesus alone. And that's what the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, it's been said that you can't be comforted, or that you can't be a comfort unless you have been comforted. And you can't be comforted unless you've been uncomfortable. So when we are in those seasons of just, man, going through it and everything is uncomfortable and, and just not fun, and remember that the Lord is doing a work not just in your life, but maybe he's using your life as a lifeline 
to bring about that, that refreshing. Uh, because again, we're, we're pilgrims. We're just passing through those valleys. No hardship lasts forever. Eventually, the Lord will see you out the other side. And true pilgrims find their strength in the Lord. True pilgrims turn deserts into gardens. True pilgrims go from strength to strength. As we trust the Lord, and as we trust the Lord, he helps us to trust him more. Now, what a wonderful picture this is. When you face that valley, when you stand on the edge of the valley of weeping and sorrow, don't give in to the temptation to throw a pity party. Don't give it to the temptation to lean on your own understanding and to trust your own strength. But allow the strength of the Lord to turn your situation into a valley of refreshing for you and those around you. I really love that section, and I hope it's an encouragement to you guys who are going through difficulties. Verse 8 and 9 really are a description of the king. Again, this whole idea of making a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate these uh, uh, festivities. Uh, these few verses, 8 and 9, are a description of the king. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. The psalmist is praying for the king historically. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield. Another reference to the king's shield. Uh, and look upon the face of your anointed. Another name for the king. So very briefly, uh, you know, the king would be a part of these festivities. <clears throat> he was God's anointed. He was the shield. Uh, but ultimately, this is looking past the king, to the king of kings, to the Messiah. Because like we spoke about, although those, those festivities had great significance for them, they ultimately point to the person of Jesus. And so, uh, you know, the psalmist uh, makes reference to blessing the king, but from our perspective, uh, this really is looking towards uh, the Messiah. And these last few verses, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. So again, reiterating the, the overall theme of this psalm, that there is nothing greater in this world than just to belong to the Lord to be his, to be in his presence. Again, to be in his house is synonymous to be in his presence. And the psalmist says, I would rather be a humble servant in the house of the Lord than to enjoy all the luxury and treasure this world has to offer. And really, when you think about to be a doorkeeper, he wasn't even in the house of the Lord. They weren't allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. He's saying, I would rather hang out and serve the Lord on the porch of his house than really to enjoy every single luxury that this world has to offer. Why? Because the greatest thing that this world has to offer pales in comparison to just the smallest thing that the Lord has to offer. Charles Spurgeon, he puts it this way. He said, to bear burdens and open doors for the Lord is more honor than to reign among the wicked. Every man has his choice, and this is ours. God's worst is better than the devil's best. I like that. Remember that the world has nothing to offer you. Even at its best, if you could have everything you hoped and desired for in your carnal nature, the mansion on the, the cliff overlooking the beach with the Ferrari parked in the garage, all the money you could spend, uh, maybe it's the, the body of your dreams or the girlfriend or husband or whoever of your dream. If you had everything, it doesn't even hold a candle to being in the presence of the Lord for just a little bit of time. And that's what the psalmist really is expressing. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 3.8, 
Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul says all this world has to offer is just rubbish. The best this world has to offer is but shadows and ash compared to the goodness and the glory of the Lord. He is our sun and our shield, the psalmist goes on to say. A reference to being our life and our protection. You think about the sun, S-U-N. Boy, nothing can grow without light. Nothing can live without the light of the sun. No fruit happens. Spiritually in our lives, it's the same thing. Without the sun, S-O-N. Boy, there's no light in our lives. There's no life. There's no fruit. Boy, rely on the Lord. He's our sun and our protection. The psalmist says, Lord, for the upright in heart, you will withhold no good thing. Now, what does that mean? For the upright in heart, he will, up, he will withhold no good thing. First of all, what does it mean to be upright in heart? Some of you maybe swallowed hard and said, uh-oh, I'm not very upright in heart. <laughs> uh, man, I got mad this morning when I burnt my eggs and I stepped on the dog and, you know, it was just, it was, I was grumpy and I yelled at my kids when I shouldn't have and I'm not very upright. What does it mean to be upright in heart? Well, what it doesn't mean is to be perfect. It doesn't mean to be perfect. It means to be right in your heart with the Lord. We've got our faults. We've got our flaws. But we desire to be who the Lord wants us to be. We're not stubborn. We're not stiff-necked. We're sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we're broken by our sin. That's really what it means to be upright in the, in the eyes of the Lord. And King David is a perfect example of that. Right? You look at King David's life from the 30,000-foot view, you're like, there is a man who abused his power to steal another man's wife and then murder him so he didn't get caught. Not exactly qualities that we attach to Christianity. And yet the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. Why? He blew it big time. But he was broken over his sin. And the Lord forgave him. And that's good. And so that's what it means to be upright in heart. So here's the thing. If you're seeking the Lord this morning, if you're broken by your sin, you're upright in heart. What does that mean? It means the Lord will withhold no good thing from you. You say, yes! Ferrari Stradale, here I come! I've been praying for it. Lord, you withhold no good thing from me. From my perspective, a Ferrari would fit pretty nicely in my garage. I mean, let's just be honest. How could that be a bad thing? The interesting thing is, is that there's no Ferrari in my garage. I've been seeking the Lord. I've been praying and asking the Lord. I feel like, Lord, I'm broken over my sin. I'm upright in heart. Why, then, would you withhold from me the goodness of a Ferrari? Let's look at that verse one more time, just a little bit more closely. It says, the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. See, here's the key, is no good thing. My idea of no good thing and God's idea of no good thing sometimes are two different no good things. And the Lord really does know best. And sometimes we pray for something, we pray for something, say, Lord, why would you not bring this good thing into my life? Because really, maybe it's not as good as you think. Uh, a number of years ago, me and my wife, uh, man, we found the house that we really, really fell in love with. Have you ever just fallen in love with the house? It's just got the charm and the character. You're just like, man, we've been looking for this. It was in our budget. And what happens when you walk through it? Boy, you start to dream. You see your stuff there. You imagine the barbecues there. This is where the kids are going to grow up and do this and that. And we made an offer, and the offer was accepted, and it was a good offer. And then for whatever reason, the seller got cold feet. 
And they rejected our offer, and they took an offer in our eyes that was a lesser offer. And man, I was so bent out of shape about that for a while. I was like, Lord, I just don't get it. Why would you get our hopes up? And you know how we can just get cranky and, and throw a little pity party, little temper tantrums like little babies? I was being a little spiritual baby. Well, we didn't get the house. And uh, a little bit after that, you know, a year or two goes by, and we see that there's a yard sale at that house. And so really inspired. I'm like, let's see what they did with my house. Let's see what they've done to our house. We're going to stop in. And, and we're there looking at their junk, you know, in the front yard. And, and we hear the owner having a conversation with somebody who was there shopping through their stuff that they knew. And the homeowner was just recalling what a nightmare that property had been. Like, this place has been a money pit. The basement flooded. The HVAC system gave out. There was problems with this and there was problems with that. And he was talking, they were in it tens of thousands of dollars. I don't got that kind of money to be fixed on renovations. And that thing that I wanted so badly, the Lord was like, son, I don't think you do. And you know what? That day at the yard sale, I was like, thank you, Lord, for saying no. (laughs) Some of the best responses we can get to our prayers from the Lord are no. And if you're in that season where you've been praying and the Lord has been saying no, maybe it's not the best thing for you. And you can just simply rest in that. I'm so glad that we can just rest in that. And so the Lord will withhold no good thing uh, from us when we walk uprightly with him. Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. See, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, something happens. He changes our perspective. And those things that he desires become the things I desire. It really is a wonderful thing. And so we have the the last blessed uh, statement. Uh, So first of all, it was blessed is the one who dwells in the house of the Lord. Secondly, blessed is the one whose strength is in the Lord. And lastly, blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord. So uh, what does it mean to to trust in the Lord? We've talked about this uh, quite often. Uh, To trust really means to rest the weight of your life upon. That you're all in. That you hold nothing back. Lord, I belong to you. You guys remember the game that you would play at camp, the trust game, where you'd stand on the edge of the picnic table and you'd fall backwards and hopefully your peers would catch you? I I don't know if they play that game at camp anymore. I think there's been too many uh, failures, let's say. Uh, Let's just say you can trust the Lord a lot more than you can trust a bunch of, you know, middle schoolers to catch you. If you're an adult, by the way, just word of advice, never trust middle schoolers to catch you in that situation. But you can trust the Lord. The Lord will catch you, and that's what it means to rest the weight of your life upon the Lord. And so blessed is the one who dwells in the house of the Lord. Blessed is the man whose strength is in the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. To, to experience that, that deep satisfaction, that joy, and that contentment, that blessedness. And if you want that, boy, the Lord has laid out for us how we can enjoy that. And that's by being close to him. Enjoying his presence. He's available if you want it. And that's the beautiful thing. The only thing that stands between you and the Lord is your sin. And if you're willing to say, forgive me, I believe in what you did on the cross. I believe in who you are, that that you're God incarnate, that you lived a perfect life on this earth, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you were buried and that you rose again three days later. And the Bible says, if you believe that in your heart and confess that with your mouth, you're saved. Number one. And enjoy the presence of the Lord. Be in prayer continually. Study your word. Go on prayer walks. Crank up the worship music. Enjoy the presence of the Lord. If you're in a place where, man, there's discontentment, 
where there's restlessness. Blessedness is the opposite of that. And go to the presence of the Lord. And blessed is the man, number two, the, the second way. Man, lean on the Lord. Don't find your strength in yourself. In your own gifts, in your own talents, in your own financial portfolio, whatever it is. And then lastly, trust in the Lord. Go all in. Hold nothing back. Sometimes we can trust the Lord like we trust the nice. Okay, Lord. No, he wants you just to be all in. He's not going to fail you. Uh, and so, uh, trust in the Lord and experience that blessedness uh, as well. Because all the things of this world, and if you put your hope or trust, you rely on anything else, it'll let you down. 100% of the time, money will fail you, beauty will fade, talents disappear, jobs end. But the Lord, he'll never fail you, ever. And so, you know, one of the reasons I love this psalm, and I know that I'm going long now, but this is important. Because sometimes we can have that desire, like, Lord, I want to be blessed. I want to walk in all that you have for me. I want to experience that deep joy and that peace and contentment. But sometimes we can feel like we've disqualified ourselves. We haven't been upright in heart. We've been playing games with the Lord. Uh, we've walked in sin. We've gone places we shouldn't. We've said things that we ought not to have said. And sometimes we can feel like, man, I, I'm damaged goods. I've gone too far, and the Lord just doesn't want me. But I want to put that into context this morning, because if you go back, and I want you to open your Bibles, and I want you to look at the, the beginning of the psalm. Before verse 1 is the superscription, which is inspired also. But it says, To the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the king, or the psalm of the sons of Korah. There's two things that I want to point out in that little superscription. First of all, <clears throat> this is a worship song that is being sung on an instrument of Gath. You say, what's the big deal? Who cares? There's significance there. Where was Gath? Who can, who can remember where Gath was? What was Gath? Philistine territory. The Philistines were pagan enemies of Israel. So how is it that this instrument of the enemy is now being used in a worship song of the Lord? Well, it's because King David went to Gath. You remember when he was running from Saul, when his life was on the line? He had this lapse of faith where instead of trusting the Lord, he ran to the camp of the enemy. Remember, and they brought him before King Achish, the king of Gath, and everybody recognized him. Remember, David killed Goliath. There was a hit song about him. Saul had killed his thousands. David his tens thousands. We're like, we recognize you. You belong to the enemy and you're a warrior. We can't allow you to be here. And David's like, oh man, I messed up big. They're gonna get. And so remember, he, he spit on his beard and scratched the door, acted like he was crazy. So King Achish was like, man, I don't need another crazy person here. Get this guy out of here. But, but David was in Gath. He was a musician. He was a king. He was the one in charge of telling uh, the musicians what to write and what to sing and what to sing them on. So the Lord took David's sin and turned it into a song of praise. The sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? Back in number 16, we hear their story. They were Levites. They were uh, in, in charge, their family, the Kohathites. They were in charge of moving uh, the furnishings in the, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant and all those different things. Well, all the other Levites, uh, the Gershonites and, and uh, the Merarites, 
they, they've moved all the rest of the temple, the, the coverings and the sticks and the sockets and all the other things that made, but they got to use carts. They put their heavy loads on carts. And so the sons of Korah, they were like, hey, why are we packing all this stuff around on our shoulders through the hot desert while everybody else gets to use a cart? And furthermore, Aaron and his sons, they're priests. They just hang out, sipping lemonade, praying to the Lord all day. Who died and made you guys king? And Korah raised up 250 men to rebel against Aaron and Moses. And you remember what Moses did? He said, let's let the Lord settle this. And he brought all those rebel rousers out before them and said, all right, if these guys just go on to die a natural death, let it be so. But if the Lord does something supernatural, we'll know that they're wrong. And boy, did the Lord do something supernatural. The ground opened up and ate all of them and their families and all of their stuff because they were rebels. They rejected God and, and who he was. But the sons of Korah were spared. And they went on to become worship leaders in the temple and doorkeepers. He takes our sin and turns them into songs of rejoicing if we'll surrender to him. He, he takes our past of rebellion and, and he employs us in worship. He, 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 he takes our past history of rebellion and brings about blessing. The sons of Korah were so blessed that the psalmist is saying, man, I want to be like you. I want to live here all the time. And the Lord wants to do the same thing in your life. See, it's a, it's a picture, this whole psalm, of God's mercy and grace. Because the thing that brings us contentment and joy is his presence. And that's only possible because where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And so this morning, no matter where you are, if you've been a Christian for 30 years and you've been kicking the can down the road, stop. Get real with the Lord and walk in all that he has for you. If you're in this place this morning and you've never accepted Jesus at all, Man, get rid of that barrier, that sin. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that you might experience the blessedness of his presence because that's where it's at, just to be in his presence. And that's what we get to do this morning. As we come to communion, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But it's more than just remembering. Right? Well, we, we don't do this as some sort of religious thing that we get to check the box and say, all right, we took communion. We come before the Lord and we get to be in his presence. We get to sit at his feet, and sometimes that's just so necessary. And I want to encourage you this morning to sit at Jesus' feet, to enjoy his presence just for a minute, for a song, for two songs, but to really be purposeful as you hold the cracker that represents his body broken for you, as you take in the juice that represents his blood, remember that you've been forgiven because of what he did. And that forgiveness comes with access to his presence, and his presence is all that we long for and it's all that will satisfy us. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.